Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with the legendary hurler and broadcaster and soon-to-be Hall of Famer, Jim Cott. Uh, that's That's... That's fantastic. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone. And today on the program, I sit down with a man that pitched in the big leagues for 25 years. He's a World Series champion and won 16 gold gloves during his career. He'll be enshrined in Cooperstown this summer. Ladies and gentlemen, Jim Cott. Kitty, thanks for coming on the program. Oh, my pleasure. Gosh, it uh, brings back so many memories, uh, Visiting with you back when you and Aaron were little guys shagging flies out at the old vet. <laughs> back in the uh, vet, yeah, the seventies. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I think I faced your your grandpa in uh, spring training, and then of course pitched to and against your dad for many years. So the Boone family has been one of the great families in Major League Baseball. Jimmy, and you know, there's not too many people. We've had a lot of people on the Boone podcast, a lot of uh, baseball royalty. There's nobody except for you. You're the first that can say, I faced Ray Boone, I faced Bob Boone, and I play, and I pitched to Bob Boone. So this is a first for me, and actually pretty cool. Pretty cool. Yeah, I uh, I had your, your grandfather's uh, baseball card when he was with the Tigers when they called him Ray Ike Boone. Yeah, uh, and then he uh, he finished just briefly with the with the Red Sox, I think, in 1960, and then of course we crossed paths often when he came back to uh, Philadelphia to visit all of you. Yep. How's your speech coming? Oh, I'm uh, I'm working <laughs> on it. I <laughs> I tell you, it's uh, it's a challenge because you know when you, when you're 83 you have a lot more memories than when you were 53. So you have a lot of, <laughs> a lot of people to thank and a lot of things to, uh, to recall, but, uh, I'm going to try to honor, uh, Sandy Koufax's advice. You know, one of the things that goes along, one of the perks with, with getting into the hall of fame is they give all the, uh, hall of famers, your contact info. So I've gotten so many nice calls and, uh, you know, I'm one of the few guys that Sandy relates to because we faced each other back in the 60s. And so we exchanged, uh, you know, he congratulated me and we talked a little baseball, a little golf. And then his parting words would, hey, keep your speech short, will you? <laughs> because I've been to a lot of those inductions, uh, you know, names that you know, uh, Lefty and Schmitty and Harry Callis, Richie Ashburn. I've been to a lot of them. And, uh, you know, when you have four or five guys out there in that heat uh, that are, are trying to, you know, deliver thank yous to everybody but the postman, it can be a long day. So I'm going to try to keep that in mind. Very cool, but an awesome day. And, and probably, you know, you've been in front of this this mic a, a lot of years, but but that's going to be a pretty special moment. Probably probably the one that uh, that you'll remember the most. Very cool. Um, all right. Let's get to let's get to Jim Cott. Growing up, you're born in Zeeland, Michigan. And uh, tell me about your childhood. Tell me about a young Jim Cotton, uh, your parents. I always like to hear about the parents and that influence on, on your upbringing. Well, you know, interesting you, you asked that because that probably will be 
kind of the heart of my uh, speech at the Hall of Fame. Uh, I thought every kid in America grew up like I did. I grew up in a little town, Zeeland, Michigan, 4,000 people would consider it kind of a, a country town. And uh, my dad was an avid uh, baseball fan. In fact, I will mention this in my remarks that uh, I knew about the Hall of Fame when I was eight years old because my parents drove to Cooperstown in 1947 so my dad could see his favorite player, Lefty Grove, inducted into the Hall of Fame. And, you know, before Pac-Man and Fortnite and television, uh, baseball trivia was kind of our parlor game. So I heard this question asked so often that before it came out of my dad's mouth completely, I knew the answers. And it was Ty Cobb, Walter Johnson, Christy Mathewson, Babe Ruth, and Hannes Wagner. They were the first five inductees into the Hall of Fame. So I knew that since I was eight. <laughs> that's, uh, <laughs> that's primarily because of my dad's uh, being such an avid baseball fan. But a um, couple things he did for me. Um, I was a pretty good high school basketball player. This gives you an idea of the impact he had on my life and the way his mind works. Um, I was a good high school basketball player. I wasn't a scorer. I could dribble, pass, play defense. But one night I got over my skis, you know, and scored a lot more points than I normally do. So uh, I took the two-block walk back to my parents' house after the uh, after the game, you know, strutting in the living room, feeling pretty good about it. And uh, my dad took a couple draws in his corncob pipe, and he said, well, Carl threw you some nice passes tonight, didn't he? <laughs> so, you know, that, that point kind of hit home right there with, hey, you know, a quarterback has to have good receivers. Uh, you know, a pitcher has to have a good catcher. And uh, if you're going to make points, you got to have guys to pass it to you. So it's not just about you. It's about the team. But the biggest thing he did for me in 1957, if you got more than a $4,000 bonus package, you had to occupy a spot on the 25-man roster. Now, a couple of Hall of Famers overcame that, like Sandy Koufax, my friend Harmon Killebrew, but a lot of guys got big money and had to sit on that bench and kind of rot, never develop their talent. So Washington, who we were the Senators before we came the Minnesota Twins, uh, offered me 4000 go to Class D ball, Chicago White Sox scout called my dad and said, we heard your son's going to sign. Uh, we think we can get him 25000 because I think he'll be in the big leagues in two years. Now, I didn't realize this till I was probably in my early 20s, until uh, I looked back on it and thought about the decision he made because he, he told Pete Melito, the scout, we're going to take the four and go to the minor leagues and learn how to play the game the right way. So, my dad made 72 bucks a week. You can do the math. The money he gave up to put me down at the lowest minors and learned the game the proper way, and it uh, it paid off for me. So, you know, that's the kind of upbringing I had from my dad's standpoint. My mother, on the other hand, uh, I think she saw one game that I pitched, and that was game two of the 1965 World Series. Uh, she was canning peaches, baking pies, making the wedding dresses for all the girls in town. And they would say to her, hey, we heard your son's a pretty good uh, baseball player. And she said, yeah, I think he's the one that throws the ball so they can hit it. <laughs> and I said, yeah, Mom, I do that a little too well too often. But uh, 
that gives you a little insight into the uh, you know the background I had as a young boy. Very cool. You were a hoopster. Um, you're a late bloomer. You ended up going to Hope College uh, before you signed with the Senators. And because I know, you know, I was I was doing my research on on Kitty Cot, and he said he was only five ten his senior year. Now I know the man you are. Now you're six four. I don't know. I, it seems like I'm I'm fifty two now, and I'm shrinking. So at eighty three, you've got to have shrunk a little bit. But I know you're a big man. Oh, yeah, was I'll, that? Go ahead. <laughs> I've gone from six five to six four and a half. But yeah, when I was a basketball player, I was the uh, I was kind of one of the shortest kids in my uh, class as far as an athlete goes. Uh, Bobby Chance was my boyhood idol. He was five six. Uh, so you, you would appreciate this when you we look at the scouting today and the way they look at how hard pitchers throw. Uh, after my rookie league and rookie rookie league uh, summer in 1957. At the end of that two-month season, the manager said to me, "Kid, if you come up with a fastball, you got a chance." Now, can you imagine in today's game if you didn't have a ninety-five-plus fastball, they wouldn't even give you a look. <laughs> so, right, I was right. fortunate that uh, that those things didn't exist in those days. They uh, they judged you on how you got hitters out, not how hard you threw. Well, the the um the story you told about your father and turning down that White Sox offer, it is, it's at that time, you know, 1957, uh, the difference. And you mentioned your dad's salary, uh, what he was making per week and the 4,000 versus 25,000 is such a huge difference. And the fact that he had that discipline to say, I want my kid to do it right. And I want him to learn the game and not just go, um, you know, it's interesting. You look back and, and, and you wonder, did that, I mean, cause you played 25 years, obviously he did something right at, at an early, at an early age in, in guiding you on the, on the route you should take. But at the time uh, it's kind of a, that's a ballsy move, but it ended up paying dividends. Well, I, I think, you know, the sporting news in those days, all it did was cover baseball. You know, we called it the baseball Bible. And uh, it came on Monday morning. It took us all week to read it. There were, I don't know how many minor leagues, tons of them. But he followed, and, and a lot of guys I was teammates with briefly, Ralph Lamini, Paul Geel, Paul Pettit, you could go on and on and see the list of guys that got 25, 30, 35 grand. They sat on the big league bench for two years, and their careers never materialized. And uh, he followed that. And that's why he, you know, that's why he made the decision. And ironically, I did get called up to the big leagues in two years. I wasn't quite ready to to pitch completely then, and I was only 20. But I did get called up then. They sent me back down for a a little bit of uh, the end of 1960. But those years I spent in the minor leagues, particularly 1958, pitching for Jack McKeon, uh, you know, San Diego fans will remember (laughs) Jolly Jack, Trader Jack. He was my playing manager in 1958. I called him a few months ago on his 90th birthday. But uh, what I learned from him, you know, pitching in that 125 game season every four days and pitching some between starts and relief because we only had seven pitchers. Why, you know, I learned a lot about pitching uh, doing that than I would have sitting on a big league bench. Jack McKeon. Wow. I had Jack Trader. Jack was my, was my skipper in Cincinnati uh, for a year. Uh, shoot. I want to say it was the 98 season. 
But uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I remember Jack 50. Um, so you go to Hope College, you study journalism and speech and uh, yeah, 57. OK, so we're signing. You go to the minor leagues, 59. You're in Chattanooga. Uh, I think that's the Southern League. I played in that league and you end up uh, making your debut that year. 59. You, you come up to the big leagues. You mentioned it earlier. You're only 20 years old. Uh how was that for you? Finally getting to the big league, it was something a, you've been dreaming about your whole yeah, life. It was a, yeah, it was a surprise because uh, I didn't really expect it. Uh, I had come off, uh, Chattanooga was double A ball. Uh, one of the reasons signing with the Senators was a good thing to do because they only had a, a couple of three left-handers, I think, in their whole organization. You know, in those days, uh, left-hand pitchers were, were rare. We're still a little bit goofy, but we were very rare in the, in the 50s. So uh, that was a good opportunity for me. But I had uh, I had a game, I think it was in May, uh, set the Southern Association strikeout record. I struck out 19. And then the next start, I struck out the first four. And then I felt something in my shoulder. Of course, we didn't have MRIs or X-rays or things like this. Didn't know about rot- rotator cuffs. So um, they just gave me 10 days off. Well, when I came back, my motion was completely different. Uh, I wasn't throwing with the same power. And now all of a sudden, uh, the manager calls me and said, kid, you're going to the big leagues. I said, man, it was Red Marion. I said, man, Red, you know, I'm, I'm a shell of what I was early. And he said, you go up there and tell them about it. You know, they didn't check on guys that closely then. So <laughs> right. When I got up there, <laughs> when I got up there and they – they saw me make my first start throwing at about three quarters instead of over over the top. What in the world happened? Well, I had a little minor back surgery. I had a muscle that uh, kind of formed some scar tissue in, in my upper back, and so I had a little bit of a, a surgical procedure after that. So uh, my big league debut, first of all, was not very impressive, but I really – there were a couple other pitchers on that team that should have gone up before I did, and uh, – so it took me a little while to recover from that. But, you know, I'm glad I did. It was a great exposure. I think uh, the 59 White Sox won the pennant that year. And, uh, you know, the first guys I faced were Louis Aparicio, Nellie Fox. Those were days when, you know, the I think Nellie Fox was the MVP and he probably hit four home runs. You know, the game was an entirely different style of baseball than it is today. While I got a quick second, want to give a shout out to DraftKings. We've partnered with DraftKings now, and they are the official sponsor of the Boone Podcast. Dan? Hey, thanks, Boone. Football fans, who's ready to score some free bets? Now you can when you bet on any NFL game this week with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. New customers who bet just $1 on either team to score can win $100 in free bets. When a team scores, you score. Hey, if Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, no worries. DraftKings won't leave you empty-handed. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes all season long with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Sports Contests. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. So why wait? 
Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code Boone, B-O-O-N-E. Bet $1 on either team to score and win $100 in free bets. If they score, you score. With promo code Boone this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. And now back to my interview with Jim Cott, famous Griffith Stadium. You make your, your, is your, uh, your home stadium, uh, 60. Uh, like you said, you got sent down briefly. Uh, and then you make the change from the Washington Senators becomes the Minnesota Twins after the 60 season. How was that? How big of a deal was that back then? And was it was it surreal? I mean, I, I could imagine, you know, I obviously in my day, I'm, I'm playing against the, the Montreal Expos. And then all of a sudden, near the end of my career, they changed to the Washington Nationals. And I actually played a game at RFK when they first changed over to the Nationals. How was that as a player in those days? Was it was it just kind of surreal or was it no, this is what we're doing. We're just we're just changing, changing cities, changing uniforms and moving on. Well, first of all, it, it was a, it was a shock. I mean, I was in the instructional league then in the fall of, of 1960 down in Florida, and we came, you know, to the ballpark with the Senators' uniforms in our locker, and they said, "Well, we're going to become the Minnesota Twins." Uh, you know, we we immediately related it to the the Brewers, or actually the Braves before they were the Brewers. When they moved from Boston to Milwaukee, it was such a positive move. You know, brand new uh, base, big league baseball for fans, you know, brand new atmosphere for the players. So from our standpoint, uh, we looked at it as a real positive thing, and it was. I mean, uh, Washington has become a good baseball city, but at that time, we didn't have a very good team. We weren't drawing many people. The Griffith Stadium was in a bad part of D.C. It wasn't really a, an attractive place to go. So going to the Twin Cities was really, uh, really a plus for us. 61's your first season in Minnesota. Uh, and 62 is where you really kind of establish yourself. You go 18 and 14. Uh, you're an all-star for the first time. And, and this is pretty amazing. It's, it's the beginning of a run, kind of an unprecedented. You know, when you think of your run with the gold gloves, you, uh, Ozzie Smith and, and Brooks E. Robinson, uh, Greg Maddox comes to mind of guys that have that many gold gloves. I got a few of them, but I was reading, I'm going, I forgot Kitty Cott won 16 gold gloves. You won 16 in a row. Uh, and that, then that first one, you didn't, you didn't relet it until after the 77 season. Um, Take me through 62 when you're really becoming a part of that, uh, a mainstay and a, and a big part of that starting rotation for the Twins. Well, I dial it back to 1961. My record wasn't very good, 9-17, and 17, but uh, Eddie Lopat was my pitching coach. And the two pitching coaches that had more influence on my career than any were Eddie Lopat and Johnny Sane. I mean – from 60 feet with their best fastball, they couldn't black your eye. You know, they did it with spin and control and change of speeds, the art of pitching. So I had Eddie in that 61 season, and uh, I finally, like, pitched my first complete game, my first shutout, kind of got my feet on the ground, even though my record 
was not that good. I got a couple hundred innings under my belt, but uh, I really learned a lot about pitching that year. And uh, so I thought in 62, I was going into that season uh, with a lot more optimism. Not that I felt like I had it made, but I felt comfortable now being a a big league pitcher. And then, uh, yeah, 1962, pitching every four days. uh, You know, I just, uh, it was was one of those, one of those years where, you know, I would say 1971, I may have 66, but, you know, I was winning games, uh, you know, two to one, and then I'd win them five to four. So everything, now I did have 14 losses, but in those days, you know, we, we, uh, we got a lot of decisions, you know, it wasn't any of this. Like I, one of the great pitching lessons I got from Warren Spahn was uh, the last thing he said to me, kid, when the game's tied in the seventh inning, the game's just starting. You got to figure out a way to pitch Mickey Mantle differently in that last at bat than you did in the first. So, you know, we took it upon ourselves to be our, we were our own setup man and our own closer. So we, we stayed in the game win or lose. So I think logging uh, 200 innings in 61. And then I, I might've been up there around 270, something like that in, in 1962. I, I really felt like he began to mature as a pitcher. Now that's back when when wins meant something. I mean, you didn't have that that uh, nine strong bullpen waiting to to get you out of there in the fifth. Um, 63, 64, you win 17 games, and 65, you go 18 and 11. And, and I wanted to get to the 65 earlier. You mentioned Sandy Koufax. Uh, recently, we had Jim Palmer on. It was was the only other pitcher I've had on the on the podcast that that has hooked horns with with Koufax. You did in that World Series three times. You beat him in Game Two. Um, Take me through that that sixty five season and and your your first taste of, the, uh, of your first World Series and especially when you're hooking up with Koufax three times. Well, the sixty five season, um, I I started forty two games and if you'll see in the record, I only finished seven. Uh, in sixty four, I'd had a good year, but I I think. I was kind of long arming, uh, long arming the ball. And so I had a lot of soreness in my shoulder. So now in 65, after about the seventh inning, my, my shoulder just started locking up. And, uh, so I only had seven complete games, but I could get through seven quite nicely. So, you know, I ended up, uh, getting 18 wins, but then the reason I hooked up with Sandy in game two, five and seven, and people get a chuckle out of this story because, he didn't pitch game one because of the Jewish holiday. So Drysdale did. So we knocked Drysdale out in the fourth inning. Alston comes out to take the ball from Drysdale, and Drysdale looks at him and says, I bet you wish I was Jewish, don't you? <laughs> Which everybody got a kick out of. So anyway, now we have our picture taken behind the batting cage, oh, maybe two hours, hour and a half before game time. So I'd never met Sandy, never pitched against him, never saw him in person because we didn't have interleague play then. And uh, the only games on TV were Saturday afternoon. So this was my first meeting with him. And behind home plate, my eyes are starting to water. I said, what do you have on? Well, he had two tubes of capsulin on his left arm and shoulder to kill the pain, which is why he retired a year later of the elbow pain, 1966. So now we go down to the bullpens and and our bullpens and the old Met were maybe 20 feet apart. And 
I begin to watch this guy warm up, and I've never seen anything like that in my life with that kind of effortless power. So the game starts, and I'm sitting next to Johnny Sane, our pitching coach. I said, John, you know if I give up a run, this game's over. I said, nobody could hit this guy. Well, we scratched out two runs, one unearned, and uh, Drysdale actually pinch hit for him in the, I think in the seventh inning. So he came back in game five to shut us out. He came back in game seven, shut us out. Uh, Ten strikeouts, no walks. I, maybe he did walk a man, and uh, he couldn't throw a curveball after the fourth inning. So that's that's how impressive he was and how powerful he was. And it's uh, it, it's such an honor now to be able to call him a friend and kind of recall uh, our, our days during that 65 World Series. But, you know, Gibby, Marichal, Seaver, Lefty, uh, Randy Johnson, Maddox, there's a lot of great ones out there, but I always kind of put Sandy uh, a little bit higher because he pitched for a team that didn't score him a lot of runs. And, you know, he pitched a lot of complete games. Uh, I think one year he struck out 388 guys. I mean, he was just really a cut above everybody else during that era. Yeah, he's – he's, and, and it seems – you know, when you're when you look back at, at the, you know, grandpa used to tell me stories about the old timers and he'd give me a Ted Williams story and a Bob almost like. But when you're a kid, it's like, Gramps, that that time didn't really exist. It's kind of like, a, did, did that really happen? Did Mickey Mantle didn't really hit a ball there. Mickey Mantle, that's just kind of a, a you know, like a like a uh, a fictional character. I, I always looked at right. Sandy Koufax as that kind of fictional character. They're like, wow, the great Sandy Koufax. There's almost like an aura that surrounds the name. But uh, I think it's pretty cool when you bring that to life and and, and tell your real-life experiences and, and talking to his greatness. Um, 66. Pretty awesome. You win 25 games. You make your 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 next All Star team. You had a two seven five Ernie, uh, and you're kind of you're kind of in the heyday coming off a World Series, even though you lost your first World Series. Um, and then you're playing for some Twins teams where you you're playing for some with some pretty big guys. You know you you came up when Killebrew and and Rod Carew and and Tony Oliva. Uh, those '60s Twins teams. Um, take me through. Give me a snapshot of, of what that what that was like and, and and what baseball was like in those six in those mid sixties years. Well, the early sixties with Harmon and Bob Allison, then Tony came along and, you know, we had some other guys, Earl Batty had a little power, but we were always known as a team that boy, if they ever get some pitching, the twins could really be dangerous. And then we picked up Mudcat Grant in a trade in the sixties and, uh, I began to mature as a pitcher. Camilo was still there, Camilo Pasquale. So uh, I think overall in that decade, we were, you know, one of the one of the best teams in the American League. The Orioles uh, took over in uh, in '66 because they got Frank Robinson, and he just single-handedly turned that franchise around. And uh, we finished second that year, but uh, I, I don't know any way we could have we could have overtaken them. The difference in the Orioles was their starting pitching. When you mentioned Jim Palmer and Cuellar and McNally, and, and then they had Pat Dobson after a while, their pitching was a little bit deeper than ours, but uh, those were fun teams uh, to be on. And, uh, you know, we just felt when, uh, when we went to the ballpark as pitchers, 
uh, we were going to get some run support. We, we scored an awful lot of runs, and uh, that's what made our job a little easier. Yeah, you mentioned the Orioles. They were a powerhouse. And then as the early 70s start, those A's teams started becoming pretty dominant. Uh, 69, played for Billy Martin. <laughs> Give me a little Billy Martin. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you, Billy was it was it was enjoyable to pitch for him as a starting pitcher, and it was miserable to pitch for him as a starting pitcher. So now, how can that be? Well, first of all, he'd let you pitch till you dropped. Uh, I remember the spring of '69. Uh, Lou Brock hit a line drive back at me, my last start of spring training, and I dove for it, and I could tell. I pulled a little something on the inside of my left thigh up near the groin area. And uh, so Billy notices me walking with a limp. And I'm scheduled to start the second game of the season. He said, uh, you going to be able to make it? I said, I think so. Uh, he said, all right, give it a try. We'll just, you know, take inning by inning. Well, my first start, I pitched 11 innings. <laughs> and, and I was getting my leg shot up every, you know, every start. With Novocaine. But the miserable part was if you gave up a hit on a fastball, he couldn't take it. You know, he just, he wanted every pitch to be a curveball. He just beat up his catchers, second guess the catchers all the time. I remember he'd come out to the mound and uh, George Mitterwall was catching. He'd start chewing on Mitterwall, and I'd have to tap Billy on the shoulder. I said, Billy, I shook him off. It was my call. I did it. He wouldn't hear that. You know, so he just, and, he was kind of he, – he had a hard time telling the truth and facing up to everybody. If you could have locked him in the dugout, uh, locked him in his room, I mean, and just put him in the dugout. I mean, Rod Carew stole seven to home seven times that year. Uh, you know, he just – man on second, nobody out. He'd give you one swing. Other than that, if you're a lefty, you drag a bunt. If you're a righty, you push a bunt. Get the man to third. And uh, that's the way we played baseball. And in the dugout, he was brilliant. I mean, very creative, fearless, but uh, off the field, he just had so many issues and had a hard time, uh, you know, telling the truth to people. And, and kind of that's what it uh, did him in, as I'm sure everybody that's a baseball fan has followed the stories of the uh, trouble he got in off the, off the field and the number of times he lost his job because of it. But uh, I enjoyed pitching for him. I mean, I knew when I had the ball that day and, Unless I really got hammered, uh, it was going to be me for most of the game. <laughs> <laughs> 69 and 70, you go to the playoffs uh, consecutive years. And we get to 73. Now, you've been there a long time, obviously coming up when they were the Senators, turning into the Twins, but the same organization since you're a kid, you know, signing in 57 and abruptly in 73 – uh, you're headed to the White Sox. It, was that a shock for you? I mean, you'd been there so long, or, or was that just kind of business as usual, and this is just how my career is going? Well, you know, after 72, I don't know if my voice changed there. My my phone was losing a little power, so I came off here. To, uh, in 72, I slid into second base. I was probably having the best year of my career and broke a little bone in my wrist, uh, and so after, I think, July 1st, I was 10-2. and two. I think Jim Palmer and I were top of the league at about everything. And so I'm done for the year now with that broken wrist. And that year I had developed a screwball. So when I came back in 73, 
um, I, I really wasn't, uh, I wasn't very sharp and I was getting knocked around pretty good. And I think the twins, you know, at that time when you're about 34, 35 in those days, they thought your career was about over. So I knew they put me on waivers, but, uh, I remember telling Bob Rogers, our bullpen coach, I said, Buck, I know they're putting me on waivers, but I'm not done yet. I said, my arm is just starting to feel good again, like it did before the wrist injury. So I got a call from Roland Heeman, who uh, is a Hall of Fame executive. And he said, we just uh, claimed you off waivers. And I had heard that the Yankees and the Royals were interested in a a left-hand pitcher because they were both in contention. And Roland said, no, we're looking ahead to next year. Well, you're going to be back with Johnny Sane as pitching coach, and Chuck Tanner's eager to have you. And he said, uh, I see you're making $60,000. He said, we're prepared to give you a contract next year for 70000 That doesn't sound like a lot of money today, but, boy, in that day, I'd have had to win 20 games for the Twins to get that kind of raise. So, uh, you know, I, I, he said, now, the reason I'm eager to offer you a contract, he said, you are the first player – to come under the five and 10 rule. You have 10 years in the big leagues, the last five with the same team. So you have a right to turn it down. Well, I wasn't going to turn that down for a team that wanted me. And, and, you know, I was going to be a part of their rotation, which the twins had kind of, uh, we had a young lefty named Tommy Hall and Dave Goltz was coming up. So, you know, they had guys to take my place there. Burt Blylevin actually was just starting to develop into the hall of fame pitcher. He is so, uh, it wasn't a big shock. It was actually a, a plus for me. Yeah, you end up 74 and 75. You ended up winning 20 games both years, 21 and 74. You're an all-star in 75. And then we get to where where uh, I get to meet Kitty Cott. You're headed to the Phillies. <laughs> uh, you're going to play there from 76 uh, midway through the 79 season. And take me through those Phillies years in your eyes. I mean, that's when that team was, that was a good team. And that's when all those guys who had come up together were starting to kind of formulate and get it together, you know, from Bull to Schmitty to to Boa to Lefty. Um, Yeah, take me through those those Phillies years because I know how I remember it as a kid. You know, those still, those are some of my fondest memories, uh, me and uh, me and Aaron growing up in that era and and just being around the clubhouse, you know how big of a pain in the ass I was. But, man, I look back, I, I, I got to play this game a long time, and I have a lot of great memories as a player, but but some of my fondest are, are, are hanging on your guys' leg, putting my Philly uniform on, uh, riling up Bushy. For those of you who don't know out there right. listening to the podcast, oh, yeah. Bushy yeah. was a legendary uh, clubhouse attendant for the Philadelphia Phillies. And uh, Kitty Cott, you're coming into that clubhouse. Take me through it. Well, you know, after the 75 season, uh, Roland Heeman said to me, you know, you've had two real good years and you're, you're entitled to a, a good raise, but Mr. Allen is losing money. Uh, we're not drawing any people. And he said, we, we think right now we could probably get some young talent for you. Actually, uh, a Philly, you'll remember, Dick Ruthven, he was one of the three guys that the uh, White Sox got in trade for me. So he, Roland said to me, there are three teams in the National League East that are looking for a veteran starter, the Pirates, the Mets, and the Phillies. If we could do it, which team 
would you like to go for? Well, the Philadelphia Athletics were my dad's favorite team. Bobby Shantz was my idol. Always followed the Philadelphia teams. And as you said, I was watching that team in spring training, and they just kept getting better and better every year. And I said, boy, if, if I could get traded to the Phillies, that would be, I'd really like that. And uh, so that's how that trade materialized. Unfortunately, I did not have my my best years individually there. Uh, Chuck Tanner had told Paul Owens and Danny Ozark when they made the trade, he said, look, you have to pitch him every four days, even every three days once in a while. I had started 43 games the year before, pitched 300 innings. The more he pitches, the sharper he's going to be. And Danny didn't operate that way. Like Danny Ozark, our manager, he called me in one day. He said, you know, we're going to skip you your next start because we're playing Montreal and they have like eight right-hand hitters. I said, well, let me see, Danny. I've been pitching for 15 years in the big leagues. I have a feeling I probably had to get right-hand hitters out about 10,000 times. So I had to get some of them out. So I can't just pitch to just lefties alone, (laughs) but – but anyway, he, you know, he kind of spot started me and I never really, I, I had a nice run about the middle of that year. And then out of the blue in St. Louis, and this is probably one of the moves that I really wished that I, I had not made, but he, he looked at me and he said, go in and run for bull. It was in St. Louis tie game, ninth inning. Uh, we had no pregame drills that day. And I got my rubber nubs on my shoes, and I go out and I run for bull. Jay Johnstone hits the first pitch in the gap for a double, and I go sliding into third, and I crack my kneecap. And that kind of uh, compromised me for the rest of the year. But team-wise, that 77 team with your dad, and actually opening day in, in 76, uh, I started opening day, and Johnny Oates was the catcher. And then Johnny got hurt. Your dad stepped in, and the rest is history. So, you know, we had your dad there, and and, uh, and then with uh, Dick Allen at first, and then along came Davey Johnson. I mean, talent-wise, with Bold and Gary Maddox and Bake McBride, uh, Lefty, uh, Tug McGraw, I, I thought talent-wise, Timmy McCarver and I all, often say those are the best most talented teams we were ever a part of. And, and you, you know, Aaron, your brother was so good at mimicking all of us, but we knew tug and I would be shagging flies and you'd be running out there. And I remember telling your dad, I said, that kid's going to play in the big leagues. There's no question about it. You know, we could, we could tell immediately. And of course, Aaron developed into a good player too. But at, at that age, you were, you were the one that stood out as a, as a player, and Aaron was the one that if we'd say, hey, Aaron, give me a Gary Maddox, you know, he could get down and he'd mimic Gary's stance and my pitching motion, and uh, that that was what he did as a young boy, and, and you were out there catching fly balls with all of us. Yeah, and Aaron, still to this day, he could still he could still give you a kitty cot, uh, uh, pretty good interpretation he could he could get on the mound right yeah. now and and make you think it was you he's he's still good at that Aaron was always like that you know he's always imitating and he, he would do the play-by-play when when dad wouldn't take him to the ballpark he'd sit in the in the living room and he'd make a baseball field and then you know the announcers would come on and it was he'd turn into Harry Callis and Aaron was always like that and we used to kind of I'd look you know I was a little older I'd look at him like what is my like 
my brother is a strange kid. Doesn't he just want to play? He he wants the mic in front of him more than he actually wants to play. But uh, yeah, that was there were some fun times. The '80s, those Phillies teams. Uh, I'll never forget them. You move on to the Yankees. You have a brief brief uh, tenure with the Yankees, and then you end up. Uh, Going over to the St. Louis Cardinals, where in 82, uh, you become a World Series champion. You play for Whitey Herzog. Uh, great teams you had over there. You know, Joaquin Andohar, I remember, who Aaron would probably do a great, uh, you know, interpretation of. Uh, Bruce Sudo, who I hear endlessly from my dad, you know, because still to this day, Jimmy, uh, my dad, and when we get together, we'll talk about the great closers. And I'm going to talk about Mariano and and uh, Trevor. And he's always going to, hey, Bruce Suter was the first with that splitter. He came up with it. I hear I hear the stories about Bruce Suter. I never got to face him. Keith Hernandez on that team. Um, 1982. You've been to a World Series. You've been around a long time. You know, at that time, you've got over 20 years in the big leagues. But you finally win that. You get that ring. Uh, what was that like for you in, in St. Louis? And how rewarding was it to to this late in your career, finally getting a chance and finally getting to, to go to that parade? Well, we'll back it up to, uh, to 1980. Uh, you know, I was with the Yankees, and uh, they put me on the DFA list. I was there just for a month, and then Rudy May got off the list. So uh, I pretty much thought my career was over. And you're on that list for 10 days, and I think it was about the eighth day I get a call from John Claiborne, who's the GM of the Cardinals, and he said, can you be at Bush Stadium uh, by noon tomorrow? We have a businessman special, and we just picked up your contract. And uh, I said, wow, John, I haven't picked up a ball in 10 days. I said, you know, if you waited two days, uh, you know, I would have been free. He said, no, we need help right now. I said, well, no, you know, you're not talking to Goose Gossage. Uh, <laughs> he said, no, we <laughs> We want you here. We need a lefty in the bullpen. Okay, so I fly into St. Louis the next day, get to the park a little before noon, put a uniform on, go out the tunnel uh, to the bullpen. And Pete, Buffett, Pete Vukovic, who was teammates of mine in Chicago briefly, he's a starting pitcher. So now about the seventh inning, I said to uh, Dave Ricketts, the bullpen coach, I said, you mind if I get up and, and throw a little? I haven't thrown in about 10 days. So I get up and start throwing. The phone rings. Kenny Boyer's the manager, and Ricketts says, "Hey, he wants to know if you can go in the game." <laughs> I said, "Well, I guess so." So there I go in the game, and Vuk looks up at me, and he, "Where in the world did you come from?" I said, "Yeah, I'm your new teammate." So actually, I went in and picked up a save that first that first day in St. Louis, and and then the next, you know, eighty eighty one, I started a few games, but in eighty two. Whitey said to me, uh, our deal at the offseason, I would just say, Whitey, what do you think? Can I still pitch or, you know, I'm going to be 43? He said, look, I want you to be my lefty-lefty guy. He said, I'm getting Bruce Suter. I'm going to build my staff from the ninth inning back. He said, I went out to see the old man who was Gussie Bush, and he said, I'm going to get him one more world championship. And so that's how that whole thing started. As Whitey said, it was Bruce Suter that, that really turned the thing around because those were the days when – a closer could go more than just one inning. So uh, we hit, that was the most exciting team to be a part of. We hit 67 home runs as a team. Uh, we had Willie McGee, Ozzie Smith, Lonnie Smith, Tommy Herr. We had guys that could run. We had good defense, one of the best infields you could see with, with uh, Keith Hernandez and then Tommy Herr. And, 
Kenny Obergfeld doesn't get that much. You know, he's not a well-known name, but boy, he played third base great and an Aussie at short. So uh, our motto was get 10 singles every day. And uh, at the end of the year, we uh, we ended up beating uh, uh, the Brewers, who had all the home run hitters. And in fairness to them, they were missing Raleigh Fingers that series. So that was a that was a big difference. But Bruce was the one guy that Whitey will say turned that team around and helped us win that World uh, World Series. And for me, what made it extra special is uh, back in 1997, the Orioles were playing the Indians in the American League Championship Series. And my friend and your friend, Timmy McCarver, was doing the uh, commentary on TV. And he said, well, if the Orioles win this game, uh, Cal Ripken will go back to the World Series for the first time since 1983, 14 years. Who holds the record for the longest period of time between World Series appearances? Hmm. I scratched my head and I said, I think I'm the answer to that question. And I am. So <laughs> 17 years later, to uh, you know, to finally get that that ring at age uh, 43, that made it even even more special. It's pretty awesome, and and I love hearing the stories about this far this far along in the show already. You've you've gotten injured, you're, mind you. You're a starting pitcher. You know, you end up your career with over 280 wins, but you've gotten hurt twice now on the base paths, <laughs> and, and you're just they send you in opening day and you pick up a save. I mean, it's just it's cool to me because that's back kind of the golden the golden ages of baseball where you did stuff like that. And, and you were a part of, you know, Hey, Kitty Cott, I know you're pitching tomorrow, but go and run for bull. That, that cracks me right, up. That would right. never happen today, but it happened. It just so happened. You get injured on, on going first to third. Right. Yeah. I love hearing stories like that. All right. After 83, you retire 84. Interesting. Pete Rose. You go to Cincinnati, you're the pitching coach for a year under Pete. How did that come to fruition? Well, when I was pitching against Pete and in uh, Philadelphia and St. Louis, the visiting dugout was the third base dugout. So if Pete grounded out, he would round first base and he would try to run over the mound and make the pitcher move out of the way. And so I could see him out of the corner of my eye. And when he came toward me, I just started inching my way right in front of him. So he either had to run over me or around me. And he would look back at me with that little grin of his. So now we had a batting practice pitcher named Henry King. I don't know if you remember. I remember Henry. He was there. I remember him. Yeah. Lefty. But, uh, but right. But Pete said to Henry, uh, he said, you go over and tell Jim that if I get a managing job, I want him to be my pitching coach. So, when Pete got the managing job at 84 as playing manager, uh, I had been to the Pirates spring training, just kind of on a little vacation that Chuck Tanner said, why don't you come to spring training, see if you could hook on with somebody. I was 45 then, uh, and I didn't. But uh, when Pete called, I said, well, and I want to tell you, I've got, I've got some different ideas as a pitching coach that I picked up from coaches that I had, like Eddie Lopat, Johnny Saint. He said, Kitty. I won't mention all the words and adjectives that Pete used. I don't know anything about pitching. I just know hitting. You take the pitching, you do anything you want. He even wanted me to take the pitchers out. I said, Pete, I won't do that because 
if you're playing first base and I go out to the mound and I make a move and you're standing there saying, hmm, I don't know if I'd do that, and then you end up losing your job, no, I'll, I'll do anything you want me to, but I won't make that move. That's going to be up to you. So I really enjoyed that. You know, uh, we went to a four-man rotation. Tommy Browning won 20 games, and, you know, I was there during that time when Pete broke uh, Cobb's record. So, you know what, Pete, unfortunately, uh, I had to interview him when I was with ESPN and ask him, you know, about betting on baseball, which he vehemently denied. Because I said, look, if, if off camera, I said, if, if you just admit it, I mean, you, you know, uh, Brett, you've seen how baseball forgives the guys over the years that have kind of fallen from grace. But Pete just dug his heels in. And what made him a great player ended up taking him down, you know, uh, with what he did off the field. But uh, I really enjoyed being around him and uh, and coaching. And then, of course, broadcasting came along and as I've always referred to it as legalized robbery. So when I had a chance to do that, why, uh, uh, you know, I jumped to do that. But I enjoyed my year and a half there coaching for Pete. And I'll take it back a little bit. When you went to Hope College, you studied journalism and speech. Did you did you always have in the back of your mind when you were done playing that you wanted to get on this side of the mic, on the broadcasting side of the mic? Or did that just kind of uh, evolve? Yeah, that, that just kind of evolved. I mean, I, um, I only took those, those classes because I, I did some of that in high school and I wasn't going to be a chemical engineer. So I looked at the easiest courses available <laughs> actually in the back of my mind, if I never made it as a player, I would love to have been a high school basketball coach, you know, in a small town. I always thought that had been a lot of fun, but, uh, no, what happened when, when we had rain delays, and you remember Harry Callis and Richie Ashburn uh, when, when you were a youngster, well, in those days when there was a rain delay, they'd call down and, and try to get a player to come up and, and just tell stories. So uh, Harry called. I went up there in the booth in Wrigley Field one day, and, and there was a, a fellow there with Major League uh, Films that was producing the uh, telecast. He said, Hey, you ought to think about getting into this when you're, when you're done playing. Well, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking about it at all. And then when we had the player strike in 81, this same fellow, Jody Shapiro, he called me and he said, how'd you like to do triple a games with uh, Ralph Kiner? Uh, because during the strike, the home team sports out of Washington, DC and Baltimore, they're going to televise triple a games. So, I did games. The first game I did with Ralph was in Rochester, and the shortstop was Cal Ripken, and the pitcher was Mike Boddicker. <laughs> so that's how I kind of started calling games and then uh, did college games for ESPN, and it just kind of rolled on from there. Good morning, America. You were the baseball correspondent for the great Charlie Gibson. He was a huge baseball fan. Uh, I think that's how you broke into the into the business. In the '86, you go to the Yankees, and then the rest. I mean, you've been, you've been in this game for now 30, 40 years. A lot of CBS, NBC, um, but but the Good Morning America gig. That's where it kind of all started. Is is that is that correct? Well, I, I would say I would say the home team uh, sports doing the uh, well doing college games, uh, but doing the uh, AAA games during the '81 strike. Then I did some college games, and then it was actually David Hartman with Good Morning America, who was such a baseball fan, and he came to spring training 
uh, one spring when I was still with the Cardinals. That had to be like probably 81, 80, somewhere in there, and we trained at St. Pete. So uh, he called me about that 83 World Series, and he said, how would you like to be my correspondent? That's that's when I did, uh, you know, the Phillies got beat by the Orioles that year, and then the next year the Tigers uh, played the Padres. So I did Good Morning America reports during, during those uh, two years, but – I think it was doing the games during the strike year and doing the college world series uh, for years. You know, I got to see so many of the star players when they were like, I think of Phil Nevin who coached for your, your brother. Well, yeah. Phil was the only MVP on a losing team for Cal state Fullerton. I saw Messina when he was a junior and going back to Jack McDowell and all these Ben McDonald, all these guys that were college stars. Uh, I was doing the College World Series then out in Omaha, which was a lot of fun, and that really gave me the the experience. The, the fellow who gave me the biggest break was uh, I was working for ESPN in 1994, and um, we were living in Madison, Connecticut. And my legs were a little younger. I couldn't do that now, but we were rollerblading on the – around the streets of Madison, Connecticut. And I hear this voice call my name and I said, who in the world knows I'm here? And it was Brian Burns, who was with Major League Baseball Films. And he said, Tony Kubek is trying to reach you. He's retiring and he's recommended that you get the Yankee job, uh, cover the Yankees for the Madison Square Garden Network. So uh, I thank Tony all the time for that. That's how I ended up getting the Yankee gig in the mid nineties, which was probably as as good a local broadcasting job as you could get, especially with the you know the teams that they had for the next ten years. And you've been doing it a lot, long time. I saw you last, uh, just this past postseason. I said Jimmy Cott still doing it. You're the, you could be the most well traveled man. You've got more baseball experience than, than maybe anybody I know. I mean, starting in 1957, still calling games in 2022. Pretty awesome. Um, Jimmy, I wanted to talk to you about your technique and the way you, what you were known for, which was getting that ball and getting rid of that ball. I mean, you worked fast. Do you know Jim Cott's pitching? It's going to be a quick game. It's going to be decided one way or the other. It's going to be quick. Uh, as a defender, as a second baseman, playing behind you would be a dream. We don't have any downtime. It's get it and throw it. How would you come up with that? And it's really not commonplace in today's game. A lot of, a lot of guys today are very uh, – just kind of take their time. Even in my, my generation, there weren't too many guys that got it and threw it. I know as a hitter, I hated it. When you, when you were ready, you know, before I get in the box where I got to hold my hand up and go, wait a minute, make him, let me get set before he pitches. It used to drive me crazy. It was kind of a mental game. How'd you come up with that? Or, or is this just something naturally that I just want to get it and throw it? Uh, well, I, you know, I came out of, I came up with it out of desperation. It was Johnny Sain's uh, suggestion when, when uh, Minnesota put me on waivers, my arm felt fine. It had come back from the wrist injury in, in uh, 72, but I just lost um, – I just didn't have much zip on the ball. And uh, so I had kind of a long motion. You know, I'd be what you'd call a hooker. My arm fell down below my 
uh, almost down to my knee, and 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 I I, I had a big arc with my arm, and uh, I was kind of what hitters would call sneaky fast in my younger years. So Johnny said, uh, "We got to get a quicker release." Uh, man, I was struggling. I was uh, I was four and six in the early part of of '74, and Harry carries on the air. He said, "Boy, folks." When your fastball and your slow curve are the same speed, it's time to call it a career. I don't know what Tanner keeps running him out there for. So now we get off a road trip, and uh, at O'Hare Airport, I'm getting my luggage, and Chuck comes over and he said, uh, I, come in tomorrow and I want to talk to you. Come in a little early. Well, my thought was, okay, I'm 35 years old, going on 36. He's going to say, well, you've had a nice career. But we're gonna uh, we're gonna go for some younger guys, the old that go a different direction. So he called me in and he said, "Look, you've been averaging 15 wins a year in this league for over 15 years, and I think you can still do it. I want you to go down to the bullpen with Johnny for the next 10 days. You're going to start a week from Monday in Cleveland. See if you can figure something out." So John and I go down there and we're working on this. He said, "You got to get quicker. You got to get quicker." So finally, I said, "Okay, the bases are loaded." The hitter has hit a one-hopper back to me. I'm going to step and throw it to the catcher like we're going to start a one-two-three double play. And that's how I started that motion. And all of a sudden, the hitters were stepping out of the box. And like Brooks Robinson told me, he said, hey, you don't give me any time. I time my, my motion in the box. When I see the pitcher start his, I start mine. He said, you don't give me any time to start. And I thought, you know, that's how – as you said, you hated that. Uh, I'm surprised more pitchers don't do that. But that's really how that uh, that that came about. And at the end of that year, uh, I was 21 and 13, and then had another 20 game season. That's just because you know Johnny worked with me, and I came up with that step and throw I used to have on my glove. Study long, study wrong. Here it is. Let's go. One time, Bill Melton playing third base. He turned around to say to the left fielder, you know how you'll do as an infielder, you turn around and motion, there's one out. So he turns around and motions to uh, Carlos May, I think, out in the left field, one out. By the time he turned around, there was a one-hopper coming right at him. <laughs> so he, I didn't give him any time to turn around. But like you said, the players loved it. I mean, that's what helped Dick Allen and I bond and become such close friends is that he just loved the fact that uh, – he could be in the game on every pitch because uh, th- there wasn't any downtime. The pitchers were, uh, the fielders were on their toes, and you get more good plays made behind you when you do that. Oh, I loved it. If I, you know, the the rare times that I had a, a fast worker in that rotation, whatever team I was on, I used to love it defensively. Like you said, it does. It keeps you in the game and the methodical, uh, you know, people are, the, they're going to be themselves and they everybody has their style. I'm not saying it's wrong to take your time, but man, when, when I knew I had somebody on the mound that, that gets it and throws it, I'm on my toes all the time. I'm ready to go. And And like you said, it, People probably were at a uh, had a heightened awareness and, and were more apt to make great plays. So uh, I, I think it's an advantage all around. And we get out of there quicker and we're not playing three and a half hours. We're getting out of there in a minute uh, in a buck fifty nine. Now, you probably did you ever uh, did you ever play against Larry McWilliams or was he done by the time you came up? You I think Larry was just way? done by my beginning. Yeah, I started in yeah. 92. So. Yeah, yeah, because he he started doing that a little, and uh, 
Now you'll see some of the pitchers today. I mean, Johnny Cueto does it. Uh, Avaldi did it a few times last year. They'll just, uh, without going Quick into a pump Quick with their arms. Yeah, they just, and, and that's kind of what I did. I mean, I loved it because, like Reggie, Reggie would step out of the box and said, finally the home plate umpire just said, hey, throw it. And I'd throw it. He'd call it a strike, even with Reggie step out of the box. So, you know, so they, they learned. They had all their little tricks, like the one that my good friend Bobby Mercer pulled on me. Uh, scoreless tie, bottom of the ninth, two out, and Bobby's the hitter. And he calls time and he calls for the ball. So I lobbed the ball into the home plate umpire. And while I'm doing that, Bobby digs in and he's all set. And so he was ready for me. And he turned around on that first quick pitch and drove it out of Candlestick Park and beat me one nothing. And I said, Bobby, I'm I'm glad more hitters don't do that. But uh, he tricked me with that one. But yeah, it, it there's a big advantage uh, because the hitter did not have a chance to get comfortable and get set. Yeah, and it's it's you start that mental game, and and uh, you know I found that more times than not, I I, I don't want to be as a hitter, I don't want to be angry at you as a pitcher, because then I'm going to do things out of the sort. Uh, you might be able to you know piss me off a little bit, but I don't want to be angry. So you getting the pitchers, the hitters angry, actually advantage you. All right, no question, yeah. The Hall of Fame journey, and you've had a pretty, pretty spectacular one, and and a long time coming. I said, you know, you get, uh, you're going to the Hall of Fame this summer, uh, but it hasn't been an overnight. It wasn't a first ballot. You know, we had Bert Blylevin on. He talked about it. Uh, it. Took him a while to get in. Alan Trammell. Um, when you first got put on the ballot, Jim, and, and you didn't make it, and you didn't make it, and, and year five and six and seven and eight come, on Hall of Fame Day, how did you start preparing for that? Would you think, I'm going to pr- prepare for that phone call, or, or does it get to a point where you don't know what to think? Just kind of take me through your journey of your Hall of Fame. Well, when I was first eligible uh, on the writer's ballot, so my my last uh, year of active pitching was 83. So I think 88 or 89 would have been the first year I was eligible. And, uh, I knew my win total was, you know, right there close to Robin Roberts, Fergie Jenkins, but you know, I wasn't the dominant pitcher that they were. So I was just curious as to, to what the, what the writers would think. And I never got, I think I got about 30% was the most. And then when the veterans, uh, committee came along for a while. They'd meet every three years, and I'd hear from like Brooksy and Al Kaline and guys, hey, you belong here. We're going to get you on there. But, you know, you had four executives and four writers. And in those days, sometimes the executives, they never even saw me play. Somebody probably had to tell them about me. So I never was very optimistic about it. I did come within one or two a couple of times. But this year, I was playing golf with Schmitty. Mike Schmidt, uh, last spring, not this spring, spring before. And, uh, somebody, they're always asking me about that. You know, you belong, you deserve to be there. What do you think? I said, you know, I've kind of put the hall of fame in my rearview mirror. I said, I understand when you look at Randy Johnson and, and you look at Sandy and Marichelle and Seaver and lefty, these guys were perennial opening day starters, number one guys, all stars. I said, I really wasn't in that that category. And I think that's what's keeping me out. So I've kind of forgot about it. And 
But he said, well, not so fast. He said, I'm going to be on the committee this year. And he said, I'm going to state my case for you. So this year, I think with Ozzy and Schmitty and, and Bert and uh, Fergie was a, was a big supporter, Fergie Jenkins. That When I looked at that committee, uh, Joe Torrey, Bud Selig, there were guys that, uh, that had seen me play and that I had played with and against. So I thought this year, uh, I think I'll get the fairest hearing. But I still was not really that optimistic. And, of course, they call you early that week. They say you're on the ballot. I said, yeah, I know that. I've been on the ballot for five times. A <laughs> hundred <now>. times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I know the drill. Yeah, and then, you know, if we don't call you with bad news, but uh, we just call you with good news. So if you can be available, uh, this time it was December 5, between 5.15 and 5.45. So about half of that time has elapsed, and I thought, well, I had told everybody, I think I'll come up a vote or two short. I usually do. All of a sudden, I see on my phone 917 area code. Well, that's like New York City cell phone, not Cooperstown. But I go ahead and answer it. And it's a female voice on the other end. This Jim, yeah, this is Jane Clark. As soon as the words, this is Jane Clark, come out, your life has changed. Because you know that she's calling to tell you you are going to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. So then you got a number of different emotions that just flood through you. So it is, as everybody says, it's just a, a life-changing experience. And uh, I'm very grateful for it, you know, because, uh, you know, I had guys, I think, that were willing to reward me for longevity and dependability um, and not, not as dominant as some of the starters that are in there. Yeah, I saw that, and I thought that's really cool. I and, and I wonder, uh, is it more rewarding because you've you've not necessarily been turned down, but haven't gotten that call so many times? When finally you do, is it almost a surreal moment? Like, wow, I thought this. I'd put, like you said, you'd put it in the rearview mirror, and all of a sudden it's front and center. Yeah, I think you're right. I was talking to Teddy Simmons. I had dinner with Teddy uh, last year, and, and you know, his teammate of mine, and and. Uh, he said, boy, it was worth the wait. And, uh, you know, you think about the, the Derek Jeters and the, and the first or second ballot guys that they know they're going to get there. So they got their family gathered around. They're ready to celebrate. Well, you know, I never did that. My, mine was, uh, was more of gratitude and, and just sort of, like you said, surreal, because uh, I really didn't anticipate that, uh, you know, here I think about, you know, when I was, you get a little sentimental about it. I think when I was eight years old, uh, it's all I wanted to do is be a baseball player. And then I knew my dad went to the Hall of Fame in 47. I've known about that. So here I am now at 83 with coming up on my 65th year being associated with Major League Baseball. And that's probably uh, as good a way to have it, you know, to top it off as it could be. So I'm pretty grateful for that. One more and I'll let you out of here. Give me uh, three or four best hitters you ever faced. Could be from any any of the eras you pitched in, because you pitched in four different four different decades. Well, I didn't face Williams enough to. I faced him three times. Lucky enough to get him out once. But uh, Al Kaline is the guy that did the most damage. Uh, Brooksy, Brooks Robinson, the four guys that I faced more than any other in my career were. 
Louis Aparicio, Al Kaline, Carl Yastrzemski, and Brooks Robinson. They're all in the Hall of Fame. I helped them get there. But Kaline's the one that really did the damage. And then Reggie Smith uh, wore me out, Frank Howard. Uh, but I would put uh, over a long period of time, Kaline and Brooks didn't do the damage that Al did. I think Al hit uh, 10 home runs off me. Uh, that's the most of anybody, but uh, Brooks hit as, as high average. Mickey uh, hit seven home runs. They were all solo. Uh, he didn't quite hit 300, and, and, you know, he was always a threat when he stepped in, but I used to kid Al Kaline. I said, hey, uh, you know, I got to sit with he and his wife and Brooks and their wife and Ozzy when we had the uh, Raleigh School Glove Dinners, and I'd say, Al, when I was pitching against the Tigers in Detroit, I knew there'd be a limousine waiting for me outside the hotel. You wanted to make sure I got there healthy and sound so you could get your four ABs and get three knocks. <laughs> so <laughs> we always had a good laugh about that. But those are kind of the names of, uh, uh, of the best ones. Jim Cott, it's been a pleasure. Uh, this has been a lot of fun for me. Once again, so much. I'm, I'm so happy, and, and congratulations. Well deserved. This this Cooperstown coming up. It's just a very cool thing. And what we do each and every Boone podcast at the end is we bring in the voice of the podcast, Dan Levy, to ask a question from the fans. Dan, gentlemen, how are you guys doing? Super doing fine. <laughs> All right, Jim, this one comes from Jeff and Casey, and he wants to know this. Who is the most colorful teammate you ever had? Uh, I would say probably Joaquin Andahar. Ooh. The the crazy Dominican. He was the guy who would take a shower with his uniform on if things (laughs) were going bad, and uh, he was one of these hot-blooded, hot-tempered, but very entertaining teammate so i would i would put him up there at the at the top of the list for me all right sir well thank you so much for coming on the podcast we really appreciate it well you're welcome i enjoyed it mailbag all right son go ahead and shoot when you're ready all right moon you know that sound don't you i do and that would be mailbag time Dan. the mailbag time you Where better you believe it my life uh, it's just it's the, the great mystery. All right, Booner, this is the same vein, same guy. Jeff and Casey wants to know, Brett, who is the most colorful teammate you have ever had? Most colorful man. <sighs> who would be the most color? I've had a lot. Uh, not. <sighs> well, give us a few. It's OK. You don't have to just narrow down to the one. Let's give me see. a couple most colorful was well i don't know about necessarily colorful when i when i first came to the big leagues jay buner but it wasn't that he was crazy or anything like that he was just kind of he was the he was the authority figure you know he's always giving you a hard time so so that's what i remember early uh Cincinnati most colorful you gotta say from a colorful standpoint it doesn't get more than Deion Sanders Deion was that was prime time and it was when we went out into public it was prime time and it was a show um my days and since let's see I don't think my you've days. actually really gone into exactly the Deion Sanders with you we heard a lot about Griff we've heard a lot about a lot of your other teammates but you've never really expanded on the Deion Sanders with well you. I'll tell you what I got a call out and uh, we're going to try to get Dion on the show but give, so, me, give me a Dion story 
a Dion story. I really don't have a D. Well, I'm going to save my Dion story for when Dion comes on the show. Because I think the audience will love it, but I'm not. I'm not going to divulge it at this time. But he was pretty colorful, and uh, I'll will tell you, my Seattle, and it's not a very well known name, but a guy by the name of Jose Peniagua was one of the funniest. He was a reliever for the for the Seattle Mariners in 2001, I think 2002. He was one of the funniest guys I've ever been around. Definitely colorful. All right. Well, that is going to do it for the Brett Boone podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director and producer of the Boone podcast. The EP executive producer is Rich Herrera. Digital content is Liz Landry. Please share the Boone podcast with neighbors and friends and make sure you subscribe to the Boone podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, give it a five star rating and share your feelings about the Boone podcast and leave a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. If you want to ask a question, we'll take it at the Boone 29. That's where you find him on social media i'm base on air b-a-s-s on air and you'll hear both of us on the next podcast as well for all of us here on the moon podcast i am dan levy thanks for listening flip the bat brett let's roll <laughs>